we we have this idea also, especially in economics, that if only we would have rational individuals, then all things would be better. Even artificial intelligence is is part of that idea, that it's all about choice. Okay, it's all about us as individuals, and then making the right choices. And we are now discovering with all these online things that that this is not really helpful. Okay, so we don't feel better. We're not living a better life. We are getting annoyed because these algorithms say they show us a lot of ads, and they they are often the ads that that we already know that we won't click on. So this idea of the rational individual that's that's somewhere in the background, and we have to fix that. So I I would suggest that we have to understand that the the human nature has something to do with sociability. It's not that we are rational in the sense that that our our idea is that everybody else is a competitor. That's not how we live. I don't see my neighbors as competitors, but that's the way that economics sees them. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Dirk Entz and Oskar Voltsgaard. It's also part four of a larger four-part series on the relationship between neoclassical or mainstream economics and MMT. Parts two and three were with Sam Levy on the core assumptions of mainstream economics. Part one with Dirk and Oscar was on the 2020 paper they wrote, responding to a 2019 paper by a mainstream economist expressing the common concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest. The conversation inspired a post, which you can find a link to in the show notes. In today's episode, we take a step back to discuss the larger context in which all these topics exist. For the first half hour, we discuss the monster we truly face, both as MMTers and human beings, as painstakingly and powerfully detailed in the 2017 book Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. For the rest of the show, we talk about what must be done to change our economics and economics education, the latter of which is largely based on the 2014 book Econocracy. Econocracy was written by three members of Rethinking Economics, which is an international organization of economics students promoting pluralism in the classroom. Oscar serves as the vice chair of Rethinking Economics Denmark. We face multiple catastrophic problems, which Oscar summarizes as a financial crisis, inequality, and a climate crisis. These are the big problems that must be addressed with bold solutions. But solutions are not possible until the problem is fully understood. 
which is not possible until those problems are acknowledged to exist in the first place. Most unfortunately, the powerful have little incentive to stop these crises at all, since they are likely to be the last and least harmed, and in important ways may even benefit from their happening. As Dirk says, quoting Keynes, in the long run, it is the ideas that matter. The only question is how many of us suffer between now and then. All we can do is take a breath and continue to show people how the economy actually works to realize that we can decide to use it differently and that it is time to either make our leaders into better decision makers or for us to replace those leaders or become those leaders. There are simply no other options. You will find links to several important figures, books, and sources mentioned by Dirk and Oscar in the show notes. But for now, on to my conversation with Dirk Entz and Oscar Voltzgaard. Uh, all right. Well, well. Hello again, both of you. It's good to good to talk with both of you again. Or see both of you again after a couple of months. How are you both? Thank you, Jeff. I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm happy to be back on the show again. Thanks, Jeff. I'm I'm also fine and also just happy to be back. Great. Um, all right. Well, I, I'm excited to do this this uh, follow up to what we spoke about last time, and this time is a more broader sense of the political the political context in which all of these subjects, um, you know, fit. Uh, so I, I'd like, I have, you had me read three books. I read Debunking Economics, and I discussed that with Sam Levy. And I, and I read uh, Econocracy, uh, which is about the, edu- uh, the difficulties with economic education. And I read Democracy and Change, Chains, which is pretty unbelievable book um you know showing like what i think the core of what we're really up against um so i'd like to start off with basically what we're up against and reading democracy and change was shocking like really shocking um you 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 guys had to understandably tone me down a little bit after i showed you you know what i wanted to like my thoughts about that book um so i'd like to start off with talking about basically the monster we face and that, you know, we're the minority of the minority. And to, I guess, I guess let's start with what we're running away from. And then after this, let's let go of that and start talking about what we're running towards. So I'm not exactly sure the best way of getting that started, but I think Dirk, you could probably take the lead as as far as dealing with that subject, if, if, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think that what we're up against is is basically people who have lots of power, have lots of money, and they, they want to use their money, their power to get what they want. Uh, and I think to some extent, this is a normal thing to happen in a human society. But of course, this means that when we say that we want the economy geared towards a public purpose, that we want the government to respect economic rights, social rights, and, and other rights, uh, also a right to a job, uh, and also make sure that we have the institutions that people can work, that people get health care. Then, of course, we're up against some people who say we, we don't agree with this kind of spending. But we are living in a democracy. So there's some kind of tension. And this is an issue which has been brewing for a couple of decades by now. So the, the switch from a Keynesian regime in the 70s to a monetarist regime was also a switch to 
income for the many towards uh, income for for the few at the top and that is something which which economics has shied away from basically so that was supposed to be politics but not economics and with the great financial crisis the idea that inequality somehow is a problem it started to gain traction within academic economics so there was this graph which i think pavlina cheneva um, uh, promoted quite a lot and it showed that the income gains uh, in the uh, in the booms uh, were less and less going to to the many and more and more going to the few and i think the during the recovery of the great financial crisis i think almost 90% of the additional income created after the crash went to the top 10% and crumbs were for the for the 90% of americans and that is something which of course is it was never supposed to happen and that's that's now part of the problem that we have to we have to be aware that there are some people fighting quite uh, with a lot of power and money fighting to to fighting for the status quo to to keep things as they are so they get most of the money and you have seen in this crisis in the corona crisis again that it is the billionaires who are clearly the winners uh, while probably most of the normal people are, are losers in this crisis. Okay, uh, two things. You said that we're living in a democracy, and obviously we are, but I think it's not quite as democratic as as we expect. Like the the point made at the end of democracy and change is that that in order to make any substantial changes for the many, that there needs to be a rather large majority. So I, I'd like to ask you to to address that. I mean, clearly it is a democracy, but but it's not quite as clean as 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 it should be. Yeah, so the problem is that there are some things written down in the Constitution, for example, which which lead to a, a democratic system that is not, let's say, pure, which is which which can be very far away from from a democracy in the end. So if you if you allow big money to enter uh, the the election contest, so that some some billionaire can spend a couple of hundred million dollars to support one candidate or the other. Or if you have uh, strange rules in your political system where smaller states are more powerful than, than bigger states com- comparatively, then you you have you have a problem there. And the way that Virginia was run, I think she she writes in her book. So that's um, that's Nancy McLean. Is is a way that in which the rich have the power and they're hiding behind democratic institutions. And it looks like it's an it's it's a democratic system, but but all the powers at the top, and they they change the the rules. They they try to to stop voters from casting their votes. They they engage in gerrymandering and all of this stuff. I mean that is of course that goes against the idea of a democracy. So when I say that the U.S. is a democracy, it's it's based on this idea that there's one person, one vote in the background somewhere as an idea, and. As long as this is functional, we we can use democratic means to to get what we want because we can just try to persuade everybody that we have better ideas about what to do with society, and then you will at some point get a get a majority. So John Maynard Keynes, I think he ends his general theory from 1936, saying that there's vested interests and there's ideas and they are battling. And Keynes says that in the long run, it's the ideas that matter for the for the good or for the worse. Uh, not the vested interests. So I I think that over time he, he probably is right. The problem is only that in the short run uh, there might be some nastiness because uh, probably a part of society in the United States does not like democracy anymore because they they always 
saw themselves as part of the majority and, and now they think they are part of a minority or they think that that the other side stole the elections. I think Nancy McLean in her book also wrote about uh, people thinking that Obama stole the elections. So this theme on the Republican right. side that the Democrats can only win by by stealing the election, that is that is a long run uh, kind of thing. So so that is dangerous for democracy. Okay, uh, can you? I mean, clearly the book "Democracy and Change" is largely about the U.S. Can can you compare just briefly of what it is like in Germany and in Denmark uh, related to that topic of of what you know how strong democracy is to very roughly speaking. Um, maybe you want to start, Oscar. Yeah, sure. I think my, my general view on this on this matter is that it's it's quite a different type of uh, sway that is, or, the, or a different inf- kind of influence that's causing inequality to soar in, in Europe compared to the United States. I think Dirk made, makes a great point that there's that there's vested interest in in the political system in the United States in another way in a much more comprehensive way than we're seeing in, in Europe. I think in Europe, it's, it's, it's more a consequence of, of, the, of the dominant economic ideas about who's uh, creating value in society and who's contributing to, to pay for the, the taxpayer meme that it's, it's the rich who, who fund the public sector. So, and that, that biases um, the way politics is run towards uh, the benefits of, of the well-off in, in the first place. So I think there's there's quite a quite a distinction there to be made. Okay. Uh, is Germany? I guess that fits both Germany and Denmark. Then would that be yeah, right? I think it's okay. the same here. the The inequality has increased, uh, but it's it's not even close to to U.S. levels. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, I think it's fair to say that. Well, no. It's it's obvious. It's obvious that the that the the forces we're up against the elite the uh, what they're genuinely afraid of, well, the only thing they can't stand up to is the federal government, which means that they can't stand up to the collective of people. You know, they, they feel like being an individual and working hard for yourself is the only legitimate way of, you know, that's the only legitimate kind of work. And if you, if you join together with other people, that's illegitimate in their minds. And, you know, that's why they, that's why they're so afraid of the federal government because they can't they can't stand against it. That's why they're trying to undermine it, which is effectively trying to undermine the people. Um, can you address before we before we uh, transition? Can you also address the uh, the Chilean example uh, in the book "Democracy and Chains"? Dirk, there is uh, the very scary example of what they did in Chile uh, with the advisement of of uh, Milton Friedman and James Buchanan, which are members of the Mount Pelerin Society. Um, they they really <laughs> i mean it's pretty scary what they did in chile so if you could if you could address that and and you told me that it was not the success that they try and make it out to be as as well um please yeah yeah so in the early 70s a uh, chile had a president salvador allende who was a, a socialist and he had a socialist government and they they wanted to start doing socialist things like nationalize some some industries and and increasing uh, the, the wealth of of the majority of people, um, because in many South American countries, you you came from the old hacienda system where you had one rich landowner and then all the other workers were poor, and this was ingrained in the institutions that the the modern states of South Africa, uh, South America, 
took over from from the times of uh, colonial uh, Spanish uh, regimes. So he, he was probably more a social democrat uh, in today's terms or a democrat in, in US terms. And then he was there was a coup d'etat against him. So there was um, the military which moved against him um, with support also from the CIA, which is by now well known. And they installed a, a dictator, uh, Augusto Pinochet, and he based his ideas on well the Chicago boys, some students from the University of Chicago. And they had these new liberal ideas that if you would just privatize everything, you would have a better economy. Uh, and that's what they did. So they, they privatized a lot of things. Uh, a lot of companies were, were given into private hands. Many were sold off below the below the fair value, if you want. So uh, crony capitalism springs to mind. And then the economy did not did not do very well. And by the by the early 1980s, there was a big banking crisis. The the Chilean banks gave also a lot of loans in U.S. dollars because interest rates were cheaper in dollars than domestic currency. And when uh, Volcker in the U.S. Try, uh, was hiking the interest rates up in the early 1980s to fight inflation in the United States, those banks in Chile went belly up, and 80% of the banks were nationalized by by the Pinochet government. And uh, most of the banks had big equity shares in, in the big companies of Chile. So if you own the banks, you own the economy. <laughs> so that was the, the funny result that neoliberalism uh, and the economic policy that, that was based on it led to a socialist government in terms of the government now owning uh, a lot of productive assets. That was not supposed to happen. So, so it was a complete disaster in the end. So the dictator turned away, Pinochet turned away from, from the Chicago boys and uh, went towards the middle and tried to, to find some kind of, I don't know, common sense middle ground on which to base economic policy. But, but you have to say that, that, of course, neoliberalism, as tried in, in Chile, was, was an extreme case and it led to disaster, it led to widespread poverty. And in the end, again, the, the private sector was so weak that it could only be sustained through government bailouts. And, and that's the story that, that is connected to it. Okay, and, and the, one, the one aspect that I, uh, in Democracy and Change, is about how they, they essentially provided Social Security, their version of retirement, for their people. And then they stopped doing that partially under the advisement of Milton Friedman. So people had to save up for their entire retirement. Because that's the individual, you know, uh, liberty way of doing it, and so they did. So a lot of people did save up as best as they could, and then the elite crashed the economy, and so so many of those people lost everything. So it's just it's like a sham of multiple levels, which is a that was that was pretty shocking. Um, okay, uh, so let's let's transition into to uh, the what we're running towards thing. And, and I'll ask this by saying, you know, we as MMTers were pretty few in numbers, but we have the obviously very strong argument uh, for actual average people to understand. It's just a matter of getting their attention, which we partially discussed last time. I, I don't even know the question to ask, Dirk, but I have a feeling that, that you can address this. We're few in numbers. But we have the winning argument. What do we do? How kind of, of perspective do can you give people regarding that? Well, I, I think that in the background, there's, the, there's the two different ideas of, of economists. One idea is the economist as the technocrat. Okay, so the economist 
basically sitting down with a model and then if you ask the economist some kind of question about what kind of things to do so that society will be better off, the economist will, will be giving you an answer. And it's going to be an honest one. It's going to be a serious answer. And uh, probably there will not be any alternatives or there might be some, some little things which you can tweak, but not much more. That's the idea of an economist that we've been following in the last couple of decades. And the economists can't really help much um, because they, they work for the government. They work for think tanks. They work for, you know, for companies or for banks. And they, they are a little bit like like i don't know a problem solver but the big questions they they don't appear anymore okay so it's it's only about solving the little questions if you are a technocrat uh think about the economists at the imf for example they are solving the little questions well it, it's it's also about billions of of dollars at times um, but normally they are solving little questions but if you if you follow the ideas of john maynard keynes for example he once described the economists as trustees of the possibility of civilization. Okay, so we as economists, we are not the keepers of the possibility of civilization because it's not in our power. We have the ideas, but we don't have the power. So that is why, why Keynes said we are the trustees of the possibility of civilization. And I think that's that's just the right way to frame it. So if there is any, any demand... Uh, from from the people to have civilization, to have a civilized society in which we are not killing each other, in what not we are, in which we are not attacking each other, in which we are not running around with with assault rifles, um, then we have to to think about these ideas that economists will will give to us. So you can ask the question, of course, what is the cause of violence? That's that's a very good scientific question, and and economists uh, might give you answers to those questions. Other scientists also might give you answers, but the economists usually they were those people which knew about history, they knew about money, they knew about politics, about sociology, then they knew a lot of a lot of the little things from other disciplines. So they were not specialists like a professor of I don't know physics, for example, but economists. Uh, were people who knew about this, the state and society and these kind of things. And I believe that we have to reform economics to go back to, to create economists which are following this kind of ideal more than the ideal of the economist as a technocrat, a number cruncher who, who just needs some mathematical models and then can give you the truth. I think this is the the problem that we are facing now. And this is also why students are so fed up with, with the economics that we have been uh, we've been teaching for for four decades almost now. Um, they they want to get and grapple with the the big questions, and that is something which which can only be done if you if you make economics broader, if you if you allow for for knowledge from sociology, from philosophy to influence also economics. But I think the the, the people understand now that something has to happen. Okay, Jeff, if I, if I may, Please. regarding the. Asking the big questions, as Dirk mentions, I would, I would actually argue that that the critique that has has been uh, directed at, at mainstream economics since, well, primarily since since the Great Financial Crash, has had an effect in insofar as it has forced economists to show that they are dealing with the subjects, and, and I'm thinking here of inequality, climate change, and the financial crisis. So they have to showcase that they are dealing with these topics in order to not be uh, laughed at, really. How, what, what, there's been disbelief 
following the financial crisis, there was disbelief that many economists had no idea about what the financial sector was doing and how it could be incorporated into, into economic modeling and theorizing. But what's the problem at, at the current point in time is that they are not, how to put it, they, the bulk of their efforts is trying to make all these topics fit within the, the pre-existing frameworks for economic analysis and that, that is neoclassical economics. So how can we analyze climate change by the use of neoclassical economics? How can we make the financial sector relevant in neoclassical economics? And how can we think about inequality uh, in neoclassical economics? And rather than thinking deeper and, and more taking a more pluralistic approach and, and, and using some of the theories who've been working with these subjects way before and, and even predicted that the financial crisis was coming, which, with the, which was really what only post-Keynesian economists had done, largely seen. So I, I think they're, they, they're saying right now that we are dealing with inequality and so forth, but we should be really skeptical about the methodologies and the theories that they're using to do so. Okay, and, and they have to ignore the big questions because it's simply incompatible with their worldview. There, there, there are some exceptions. I would, I would say Gabriel Sukman, he, he's, he's been really uh, strongly advocating uh, a wealth t- tax, for instance, in, in, the, in the US and linking up with the Elizabeth Warren. And so, and, and, and that is, it's a no-brainer solution to, to wealth inequality, <laughs> really, right? So, so there, there's some economists who's, who's been doing that, but he, he should probably not be labeled as a, as a mainstream economist anyway. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to make a final observation about the book, and then we're going to move on to the uh, the other stuff, which is and, – and Dirk, I know you read it, so I, I, maybe you have something to add or not. I'm not sure. Um, but Democracy and Change is a very important and really powerful book uh, Like that I think is – shows what we're really up against. Uh, she – the author clearly does not understand MMT, and it's a real shame. Uh, because I think, not I think, she she takes as axiomatically true that taxes pay for stuff at the federal level. And that is a shame. It's a missed opportunity because that is the primary argument, the primary justification and objection that is used by these people for everything that they have done and want to do. So, so as good as the book is, um, she takes their argument as truth. Um, so that that's just an observation on my part. I don't know if, Dirk, if you have anything to add to that. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's it's a shame that, that she did not read any MMT because the, the one big thing that, that they are basing their, their, their political strategy on is, is this taxpayer myth. So the idea that, that the money is coming from the taxpayers, which then implies that it's generated in the economy, and it's not true. So... That is one of the, the big things that we have to de- destroy in terms of, of myth. This idea, again, that the taxpayers are contributing dollars to the government and then the government is spending those dollars. Because that would allow those people who pay a lot of taxes to, to have more power, right? Because they contribute more to, to the government finances. And once you turn that around and you understand that it's the government which spends first, and it's kind of unfair that some people receive more money than others. And then, of course, 
this this changes the the paradigm very much because then you would ask why why do some taxpayers pay so much taxes why do they have so much income in the first place so why did government spend so much money or spend money in a way that there are some people who who can who can attract so much wealth and that question of course would be a much more progressive question than the question what uh, whether it's fair that taxpayers who pay a lot of money uh, to the state why they should no, should not have more power to determine also the government's policies, and I I absolutely agree that the book could have been much much more powerful uh, if this taxpayer myth would have been part of the book. Yeah, it, it's I I really wonder how how she could have explored that. That's it's not a small change. It, it would require a rather substantial change. But even given that, it is still an incredibly powerful book. So, yeah. um, okay. Um, all right, so let's move on. Uh, next question, which is uh, now we're looking forward. Uh, can, I'm going to ask, what is the true definition of the economy? Because the point made in econocracy and you know just neoclassical neoclassicism, neoclassicism in general, is that the economy is separate from the people, and that they pretend that it is not political. So, can you talk about how the economy is considered as separate from our lives, from politics? And and also you brought this some someone brought this up before that it is treated as technocratic, meaning only the experts get to talk about it and understand it and make decisions regarding it. And it's like, you know, doctors advise you so you can make decisions for yourself. But and and there's many different fields that are advising you so you can make decisions for yourself. But economics is different. Economics just makes the decisions for us and they pretend that it's not political, even though they're philosophy is used to craft policy that affects everybody. So what is the real definition of the economy, please? It's, if you, if you uh, purchased or borrowed the MMT uh, Intermediate Textbook, which I strongly recommend one to do, you, you'll get an introduction to two views on what economics really is. And there's what's, the, what's currently mainstream it, and where the definition is the study of allocation of scarce resources among unlimited wants and the rivaling heterodox tradition in economics, which spans several schools of economic thought, is the study of social creation and social distribution of society's resources. So here the, the focus is on creation of resources, whereas in, in the mainstream it's, it's about the allocation of scarce resources. So, uh -huh. so it's already in place. And this is really, there, there's, this is, this is a way of, of, uh, of depoliticizing the, the mainstream view, depoliticizing how the economy is working. And uh, Yanis Varoufakis has, has tried to, to define what, what orthodox economics, economics really is. And, and, and he's pointing to three basic axioms. And one is, is uh, methodological individualism. It's, we have to explain the economy based on individual decision-making rather than social forces, social groups, classes, and so forth, and, and interactions as well. It's, it's not what we, we're dealing with. Everybody's interacting through a market. And the second is optimizing behavior. So everybody's trying to optimize their utility, as it's put. And then third is that the result of this individual optimizing behavior is is an equilibrium solution that the system is falling to rest at a more or less optimal condition 
depending on on the on the circumstances but but all this optimizing behavior is not leading to systematic breakdowns as we saw with the general great financial crisis that was an external shock so everything bad is a shock and everything that's coming to it, the economy is just an optimizing system really whereas in, in the heterodox uh, tradition it's it's much more complicated and there's much more scope for thinking in terms of power and, and complexity and and how value is socially produced in production. So a shock, the mainstream view of a shock is just simply impossible to predict. Then, you know, that's basically a catch-all excuse for when their theories fail, it seems. Um, yeah, when you when you ask mainstream people about the financial crisis, for example, they say, oh, yeah, that was an, a shock. Um, we, we could not have predicted that. And when you talk to them behind the scenes, they make fun about these statements and they things like, well, I mean, it's a shock because we don't know what what happened or it's a shock because we, we don't want to talk about it. So they know that they are missing key parts of the story. Right. Um, so the great financial crisis was, for instance, it was caused by by a massive expansion of bank lending towards real, the real estate sector. And it was completely clear that there was predatory behavior. But, but predatory behavior is not in, is not in the models. So because they, they don't think about predatory behavior, they think about rational behavior, not predatory behavior. They were not able to model these kind of things. And I, I think I remember that in 2004, there was an FBI warning, which went to Timothy Geithner, who was head of the New York Fed, uh, warning Geithner that there was mass fraud with uh, applications for bank loans connected to real estate. So, um, yeah, that, that was, of course, not part of the model, so it, it cannot be talked about even. So I think economics is also part of the power structure, this kind of mainstream economics, and it's not a coincidence that there are certain things that you cannot talk about. What is also kind of strange is that economics usually was a discipline where you could talk about monopoly and you could talk about market power, but the rise of these internet uh, companies like Amazon, like Google, was not uh, somehow perceived as a problem. Uh, only now do we understand that with Facebook and Twitter, we have a problem here uh, where companies can decide who can talk on Twitter and Facebook and who cannot. That should be a democratic decision and that should be a political decision. And we are now realizing this. And the economists have ignored this all along. So I do think that the economists in the mainstream uh, view, they, they take the market as given and they start from the market. And just like Asker said, that's that's really a big problem because the markets do they would not work without property rights, without police, uh, without money. Uh, also, people would not you cannot understand people if you if you don't understand the societies that they grow up with uh, or in. Um, you cannot understand them if you don't understand their language. So it's completely ridiculous to to start with individuals uh, when you try to look at society. And then kind of assume that these these material ones are somehow in the center of things. So there's there's no recognition that there has to be social justice, for example. And and we know we we all know that there needs to be social justice. Otherwise, people will be storming the capital or something, okay? Because they believe that that there is no justice. It's these kind of issues that that are really important for for the for our world. And these are issues which are which are not included in mainstream economics. So it was it was better a uh, hundred years ago, when there was still political economy and things developed 
out of a situation where everybody understood that the state is very important. But that's that's my my five cents. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, let's jump. Yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, building on, on my previous comment, I, I would say that uh, uh, another way to put it, uh, the, the mainstream and the, and the heterodox approach to economics is, is what Karl Polanyi, a, a famous political economist, he, he made the distinction between formalist and substantivist understanding of, of what economics and the economy is, where he's saying that the formalist or the orthodox and the neoclassical approach is, is really a method. So economics is a method where you try to explain everything by marginal decision-making by individuals, whereas the other approach is that it's a field where you need to understand how the economy provides for itself and, and the provisioning and production, distribution and consumption of well, what the inhabitants of, of a society needs. And, th and this is a much wider, much more complex scope to, to, to take on the economy where you allow for institutions to be one of the crucial features of the economy, which is by definition on the outskirts of, of your interest if, if you're starting from individual decision-making and trying to build up to, to a macro economy. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, well, if I think this is a good time to jump to, to question six, and, and that is what does political economy means and how does MMT relate to that or see it or view it or whatever that, however that, fits in. Um, what is the political economy, please? Well, I think the, the political economy, as it was originally perceived, was the, a study which focused on, on production and trade, uh, also on, on the political dimension of the whole thing and the role of the state. So political economy was probably uh, very popular in, in the 19th century. Um, before it was uh, replaced with economics. Uh, in the 19th century, most of the states that, that we would talk about in, in terms of the modern Western states, these were not industrial, or they were not all industrially developed. Uh, for example, Germany only started developing uh, significant amounts of industry in the 1870s. And it was clear to all these people thinking about the state that, that the state has to play a large role. Um, there was no free trade. There was there was um, a lot of a lot, there were a lot of tariffs, a lot of trade barriers, and there were there was a fight for export markets and all these kind of things. The the British uh, said we will only allow you to trade uh, if you put these stickers on your on your merchandise, which says made in Germany, so that everybody knows that it's it's worth quality. That's how made in Germany started. Um, if you ever wondered, so. That kind of political economy was still concerned with with the real world questions, and it was not about it was not about uh, supporting the status quo. Yeah, well, to some extent, probably it started to do that with neoclassical economics, which was largely a response to Marxist economics. Um, but if you think about Adam Smith, if you think about Ricardo, yeah, there was a focus on on income also, where, whether it's earned or un, unearned income. So these writers were were hoping that there was no rent which was going to somebody uh, who did not work at all, for example. So these were the issues. They talked about the distribution of wages, profits and interest, and, and that, that was the concern of political economy. And yeah, that's, that was then replaced later on by abstract mathematical modeling. Uh, and MMT is, is, if you want, it's, it's um, moving back to these old ideas 
the political economy ideas. So it, it would it would connect to those ideas more than to modern economics, if you want. Okay, so so what I think you're saying is that political economy is simply a co- economics that recognizes politics, and so is into more interdisciplinary in a sense. Yeah, fair? and it also understands that the social sphere is, is very important, which is completely outside the scope of modern economics. Okay, and, and right, classes, and if I may add, that classes exist and are a vital uh, unit of of analysis uh, if you want to understand what's going on in society. Back then, um, economic and political economic theory also served um, a, a societal purpose, you could say, because they were, it was used to justify why landlords should, should have a less prominent position in society and, and have less of a claim on, on, the, on the income and product, products of the economy, that they were rather framed as rent extractors of the economy rather than wealth creators pointing instead to, to, the, to the capitalists, the new rising class. What happened then when, was that this debate backfired, to, one could say, after it was initially successful. And, and the Marxists uh, came and said, wait a minute, if, if, if it's the capitalist and the capitalist production system that is producing, maybe, it's, maybe we should look closer and, and actually see that it's the workers who's, who's producing all the value. And then there came the neoclassical counter-revolution to, to this process. So, while we're talking about how, how neoclassical economics has influenced countries such as Chile, but also wider, in, especially in the West, this, this has all, always been the case that the economic ideas that are, are dominant are influencing the way that the economy is structured and, and who gets to benefit from it. Okay, okay. So, so another question, somewhat unrelated, is definitions like the economy, uh, they're used to obscure things, bad things. They're used to obscure suffering and immorality. GDP in particular, and I believe GDP is used by many countries, it is the crude metric that determines the strength of the economy. So when they say a high GDP means that the economy is doing well, it's a good economy, but it can it, it hides things such as ecological boundaries being exceeded, it hides inequality, it hides pollution, and it hides you know even like sexism because a housewife, a stay-at-home mother is not counted in GDP. And many things on that lines are not counted in GDP. So by changing these definitions of GDP and, and even other things such as inflation measurement, and I'm sure there's other stuff, they can basically say that a good economy is whatever they want it to be by simply changing the definitions and that the public just eats it up. Oh, we have a high GDP. The economy is doing well. Um, so, can you can you elaborate? And this is this is a, a significant point in econocracy, um, how they support the status quo. Um, you know, like even value. The term value is you know we only measure things in in a financial sense. So, please. Well, that's that's a very big issue, um, talking about those things. Um, but yeah, I, I think the public believes that GDP and also the rate of inflation are, are somehow objective concepts that they can truly be measured. If you just go into the real world, you will be able to, to measure GDP and the rate of inflation. The, the public does not understand that these are, are social constructions, just like everything else, basically. So GDP is, is something which you have to define. And there's, 
there's no easy way to define it. So what do you do, for example, if if the price of a product goes down, even though the product is, is becoming better and better and has more and more options in terms of functionality, then you have to somehow account for that. Otherwise, you will say GDP goes down because the price is going down. But maybe the price is going down because you are mass producing some product. And that is the, the reason why the, why the price is going down. Instead, the, the value that you get from it, if you want the use value, so the, the amount of, of whatever you expect from it, or the amount of happiness, if you want, that, that might go up even. So, so there are sometimes compensations uh, when you account for GDP that they, they neutralize some of these effects. So you, you cannot objectively measure GDP. That's, that's impossible. Okay, You have to define it. And there is no right and wrong, and it's a it's a social construction. The same with the the consumer price index, which is also something which we have to define. I'm I'm not saying that it's impossible to do, but I'm just saying you have to be very careful that that you are just it's not randomly choosing something, but it's it's you you are guessing here basically. Okay, so you have to make a guesstimate what then becomes GDP or the rate of inflation. And there's again, there's a lot of guesswork involved. So, so for example, if you if you calculate in the inflation rate, I, I saw in the last three decades that my income also goes up and my my purchasing power. So, I think that GDP is probably a good a good idea to to look at in terms of of the economy doing well or not doing well. But I think by now people have realized, or most people have realized, that it's perfectly possible that GDP in the US goes up. And then, like I said, uh, 90% of the additional income uh, goes to the top 10%. So that wages are flat and real wages are flat too. So most of the people do not do not think that there's something like a good economy going for them. So I, I think that the the dissatisfaction with GDP comes from this realization that, that people or they, they ignore GDP because they know that it has nothing to do with their own situation. That's also because the, the U.S. economy has has been diverging in many aspects, also regional. Okay, so if you live in New York City, somewhere close to Wall Street, that's one economy. Then there's the economy in the Silicon Valley in California. That's the second economy. And then there's everything between. And if you live somewhere in between, you will live in a very stable world. Your probably wages are not moving up and down quite a lot. Uh, employment, hope it's either stable or unstable. Uh, but it's not changing much, I guess. So the dynamic parts of the U.S. economy are also geographically um, centered in, in only two locations. And that means there's, there's, again, there's a disconnect between the average, which is GDP per capita, for example, or GDP growth and or the rate of inflation and what people think about these kind of issues. So I I think that that by now we we, we should basically be ready now to... To go to move away from GDP, um, not so much from the rate of inflation, which I think is, is still fair enough. It's it's good, a good measure, but but GDP does not tell us too much. We should move to to other indicators, because as you rightly said, we are ruining the planet, and we should, for example, we should aim at a green zero towards a green zero. So um, the moment that we are net neutral in terms of CO two emissions, that should be a, a target of our economy, and that should be also a part of the news programs every night uh, to see how progress is 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 coming about uh, with respect to the green zero okay okay um all right can i add one thing please um 
my supervisor um, at the University College London Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, where I'm doing my PhD, is, is Mariana Masukato. And, and a few years ago, she released the book called The Value of Everything. And for any, anybody interested in, in these uh, debates over value and who, what is counted in GDP and what's, what's actually creating value, and uh, as I touched upon, uh, this was a, a heated debate in the 19th century. But it's it's laid dormant ever since. For, for anyone who's interested in this, I would strongly recommend the book The Value of Everything. It's really reignited this debate. And and a few weeks ago, uh, former central bank governor of Bank of England, uh, Mark Carney, said that he was picking up the gauntlet and and acknowledging that there's there's a big value debate to be had. And and one thing is, as you touch upon, there's there's the the lack of of attention to pollution, there's the, the lack of attention to, to actual well-being and different types of uh, tasks in the economy that's not being valued at the moment, such as, as, as work at home. But, but there's, there's a more profound layer in all of this, and that's how the, the GDP measures have been rigged to, to show certain activities to be, to be creating value and be, be counted in the GDP measure. And, and this if you get counted in the GDP measure, you have a, a really good platform for claiming that you are contributing to the economy. But what, which Wall Street banker was it that after his, one of the, his one of the largest banks got bailed out and he had the, the guts to, to claim that his, his employees were the, were the most productive in the economy because they were earning a lot of money. So obviously, huh. in this view, it's become completely normal to equate price and earning with value creation. And what, what the debate, debate is really opening right now in, in terms of discussing uh, who's really extracting value rather than earning value. And, and this is really when you, when you talk about the rising inequality that is, that is just so prevalent in the, in the US economy especially. You have, to, you have to ask these questions and, and you really have to look into how finance especially is, is accounted for in, in the GDP. There's Brett Christophers has done some magnificent work on how there was a banking problem in the 60s because by conventional measures, banking was not productive. <laughs> so there was decades of work and, and meetings at the OECD and elsewhere in order to, to come up with a way of incorporating banking into as a productive part of the economy rather than just a, re, uh, a sector that is redistributing value in the economy. So it's, there's a really complex sociological process in terms of, of turning parts of the economy into something that's productive. Another issue is, is how uh, the value of housing is imputed in order to make it productive to live, to live in one's own home. And that's really that it gets connected to housing bubbles and so forth and, and rising housing costs. That means that the, the economy is more productive, which is obviously absurd for the same, yes. for the very, very same bricks and mortar. So, um, and, and also Michael Hudson is also really, really good on, on these matters if, if the listeners are, are curious and more. Okay, great. So let's move on to uh... Uh, the, the final question, which is pretty broad, so this could this could be as much as or as little as we want it to be, and that is, you know, what what are the steps that are being taken to fix our economics and our economics education? Um, the, and 
in addition to what's being done, what can people who are a little bit on the outside, lay people and, and students can do to assist with this? So what are we doing? What are the things that we as MMTers and just more broadly, I guess, heterodox doing to fix what needs to be fixed? Well, I think that the that we, we just have to provide the answers to, to the problems of, of today, uh, which of course sounds very easy to do, but it's not. So we, we have to deal with the small problems, but also with the big problems, okay? So we have to answer the big questions and, and also try to, to get a conversation going to talk with the public about the failures of, of the past and how to fix the economy, how to fix the planet in terms of, of getting us into a position in which we are using resources sustainably and in which the, the climate change is slowed down and hopefully stopped at some point. And we, we have to go back, I guess, in terms of, of our economics, we have to go back to political economy because it, it all starts with the homo economicus, so this idea of the rational individual. So if you open up a macro, an economics textbook, like Principles of Economics or Introduction to Economics, something like this, uh, normally they start with this microeconomic thing. And they say, well, there's an individual and and you're wondering, like, where is this individual coming from? Is this like Terminator 2 just dropping from mm -hmm. the sky somewhere? No, there's, there's social context. There must be social context. So we have to start again with uh, framing the the individual as as being a member of a society so we all grow up in society and we are all members of society and one of the philosophers who was um basing his his or who was develop, developing thoughts along these lines was samuel pufendorf and who was uh, later superseded by yeah by kant so kant stresses the the rational individual but, and, and that is basically still what we are what we're all thinking about today. So we, are, we, we have this idea also, especially in economics, that if only we would have rational individuals, then all things would be better. Even artificial intelligence is, is part of that idea, that it's all about choice. Okay, It's all about us as individuals and then making the right choices. And we are now discovering with all these online things that, that this is not really helpful. Okay, so we don't feel better. We're not living a better life. We're getting annoyed because these algorithms, they, they show us a lot of ads and they, they are often the ads that, that we already know that we won't click on. So this idea of the rational individual, that's that's somewhere in the background and we have to fix that. So I, I would suggest that we have to understand that the, the human nature has something to do with sociability. It's not that we are rational in the sense that, that our, our idea is that everybody else is a competitor. That's not how we live. I don't see my neighbors as competitors, but that's the way that economics sees them. So we're all competing. And again, that's not true. Life is about cooperation. Life is about families, about, about social groups that, that you, you join and then you try to, to get somewhere to, to make your ideas and your dreams come true. That's what life is about, not about maximizing consumption. And it's, it's kind of obvious, but yeah, until now, I think I was not allowed to say that. So if you understand that human nature includes this kind of sociability, as, as Pufendorf calls it, then you understand also that, yes, self-interest is definitely there, 
but you don't want to be the winner and everybody else is dead because you cannot celebrate, <laughs> okay, to put it in an extreme form. So, so yes, there are some competitive elements in, in society and it's important that we have them. Uh, for instance, firms competing. So in order to ensure that those firms using the fewest resources, that they can offer the best price, the lowest price, and hopefully at given quality, then uh, become big because they don't waste resources. So that's that's one idea of economics in, in which I would say, yes, competition is a good thing. But you should not think that people should live in competition to each other. I think this is the kind of, of idea that, that we are running on. Uh, we want to consume more. We want to consume better stuff. We want to consume newer stuff. And the, the limits of the planet are definitely there. And, and we are overstepping our limits and it's not that that we can't do that i mean we can and then at some point we we won't be able to live on this planet some other animals will we i mean we we will not destroy the planet that's that's for sure we will destroy ourselves but the planet will live on and animal life as well and and plant life as well too so so we have to go back and and reimagine political economy to to make political economy multidimensional again, uh, just in order to address the proper questions. So so this includes a very hard question, who are we? Not who am I, but who are we? And and where do we want to go? And and these are the, the pressing questions of our time. What are we going to do with this inequality, which is creating a lot of power for some, some super rich billionaires, and which is behind the destruction of the democratic institutions that we are seeing, and then the next big question, of course, is how do we address, address climate change and the other environmental matters related uh, to it? So that is the kind of challenge, I think, that, that we need to come up with a new foundation of political economy that makes it possible to even ask the questions of our time, because modern economics does not, does not properly allow to ask those questions. It's, it's getting people away from the... You individualism and that they should start believing their eyes again, their, their senses again. You know, I, I mentioned in our last interview that, you know, MMT is understandable to actual people. The only thing that they can say against that is don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe them. Um, Oscar, you are uh, involved in rethinking economics in Denmark. Uh, can you, can you talk about how your, your perspective of regarding uh, education uh, fits into this. Yeah, I'm I'm in the uh, uh, vice vice chair of Rethink Economics Denmark, which is is which is by now a, a vast uh, international networks of students of economics who are who are, who have been completely uh, disillusioned by what is being taught in economics classes and and programs um, at Western universities, and and it's really going back to to what we started with that there's this split between ideas about what economics is and what students of economics are being taught is this formalist conception of what economics is. So you need to learn the method, which is uh, neoclassical economics is really defined by its method. So it's, it's just about becoming an expert in, in neoclassical economics rather than the, the, the substantivist idea of economics that is being an expert of the field of how the how the society uh, provisions itself and produces and, and consumes and, and uh, distributes the goods in, in society. So so there's there's 
grown this whole rethinking economics movement that's calling for pluralism in, in economic teaching, which is at the heart of it, it's a break with, with just being only taught neoclassical economics. And, and what is striking when, when you're right now, we, we're writing on a, on a report about what's being taught in every, every sing, single economics module in da at Danish universities um, for the four economics degrees that, that there is. It's a small country after all. So it's it's manageable, uh, and and what's striking is that the students are not even learning that that they are they they are learning a particular school of economic thought that is neoclassical economics. They're just being usually they're eighty eighty percent of the courses they they're just being told that they are learning modern economic <laughs> theory, and so so they they are not even led to understand that they that there are various schools of thought. And this is really where rethinking economics comes in. That it's, it's a, a movement to highlight for, for the economic student and explore for themselves what what's really out there. And MMT is obviously uh, one of the schools that have caught most interest over the last few years as, and, and the wider post-Keynesian tradition that is focused on uncertainty and financial instability and so forth that has been so prominent and, and lack of, of uh, of aggregate and effective demand in, in the economy. It's, it's been so prevalent to anybody who's been willing to open their eyes. But if you come with with the formalist perception that, that the fundamental problem of the economy is scarcity, then you you are, are led to believe that it's, that people are are unemployed because of their their incentives are wrong, that their moral is wrong, so forth, rather than that there's a problem of, of demand in the economy. So so there's been this growing curiosity and, and also frustration with what's being taught. So, so the, the students are taking matters in, into their own hands and I'm, I'm a part of that movement. I think it's it's an important, from an M&T perspective, it, it's so important to to widen the field, to, to make space for, for new economic thoughts so they can become part of this system of, of reproduction of economic thought. Because right now it's just neoclassical economists training neoclassical economists. So this chain or this wheel has, has got to be broken at some point in order to, to destabilize the, the process and, and, and eventually lead to, to better economic policy making and understanding of the economy. I think uh, there's quite a bit of progress right now. There's a striking moment in the uh, in uh, econocracy uh, where where I don't remember how it happens, but basically a sociology student uh, is in the same conference or something with an economics student, and the sociology student reveals that their classes taught them about the uh, 2008 crisis, and the economics student says, "Oh, I didn't learn about that." Mm -hmm. Like so, the sociology student is learning about economics, and the economics student is not learning about economics. Um, so, so rethinking economics is—is it—is it? Is it I mean, in a sense, it seems like a union of students. You know, these students are standing up to the education that they're getting, the system, the neoclassical education that they're getting. And, and in a sense, there must be some level of, you know, you know danger is a little bit of an extreme word, but danger that they're dissenting uh, from within the system. Do you mean that, that it's, uh, it's dangerous to, to themselves and, and the... And the marks they get from the professors and such, or what danger do you think? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, par- partially the marks that they're getting, but basically, you know, dissension is 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 strongly frowned upon. So I, it seems to me that rethinking economics, is, in a sense, is a union of of students so that they can uh, be within the system, but not put themselves in danger of basically, you know, being defined out of the system of having of having low marks of of something coincidentally happening. You know, like the schools are rated by neoclassical economics. Their funding is based on how neoclassical their hmm. their professors are. That's a big part of econocracy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these students are are standing against that. Uh, and I would think that uh, Rethinking Economics is, a, is a, an organization that, that tries to provide them protection in a sense to some level of, of hmm. doing that. Yeah, yeah. But and also, also it's, it's important to, to remember that that the, uh, the exams and so forth uh, are at least when they're in writing and and because uh, the exams are horrible, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> yeah. the the format is horrible. You just have to to go and uh, go in and, and solve equations most of the time, but but because of that format, there's there's a high degree of, of anonymity in the in when when it, when it really matters. You could say, at least in terms of careers and so forth, when 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 you've been judged by by the marks you've got you've received during your education uh, so there's some protection but it, but but there's definitely some some risk involved but then on the other hand the these students it, it it's still popular to be in in the in the associations at the local universities because these students are the most curious ones they are the one asking all the interesting questions so you have to be a part of the of the association if if you want to to debate uh, the financial crisis and and the ecological crisis and so forth. This is really uh, a community among students where you get to raise the bar for for how how you can approach economic questions and and be curious. And that's really why most students enter economics uh, educations in the first place because they're so curious about all these things. All these things, and then after the first year, they're all completely disillusioned about what they what they're doing. They thought they were they mm-hmm. were there to understand the economy and, and apparently it's it's mostly about doing math. Indoctrinate yeah, indoctrination is the term used in the book, at least for part of mm-hmm. that. I I recently came across another book in which the author makes the case to sp- split economics into two basically. So you have the heterodox half and you have the mainstream half because he says that it's um, it's impossible now to to talk to the other side. So he's a heterodox economist, Carlo De Politi, and he says if if we don't think that we can learn from the mainstream people, and the mainstream people think that they cannot learn anything from us, then there's no there's no sense anymore in keeping the discipline intact. So we should just leave and create our own discipline and have a faculty of whatever then it's called, maybe a faculty of political economy. Where the paradigm is is basically moving towards what I, I just tried to to talk about. So you say we want to talk about social and economic issues, and we recognize that there's groups of people who are trying to achieve things, and then you you split up. And I think there's there's a point to be made to to say that look if if you want to continue what you are doing, um, that's okay. Let the students vote with their feet. Okay, if if you promise jobs in central banks where you will cause uh, interest rate hikes that create mass unemployment and that completely destroy the equality in, in terms of income and wealth, 
well, go ahead, do that. But we think that the young students want to want to have a better world and they want to change the world. Um, so, so why not have a have another faculty of of economics with another name? And again, then say it's a it's a fair that it's then a fair competition of ideas because right now the mainstream people are are telling us, well, you you can all become professors except that you can't get anything published in the top five journals because we are sitting there and make sure that you can't get anything published there. So of course that means practically you cannot become a professor. Hmm. And and that I mean why should why should heterodox economists uh, support the status quo? I, I don't see anything that, that that I don't see any any use in in pretending further that there is somehow reconciliation possible. I think it's it's very clear by now that economics will not change. I mean, we, we we've tried rethinking economics has tried the Institute for New Economic uh, Thinking has tried uh, many people have tried, but uh, I think that in terms of paradigm change, it's really funeral by funeral. You have to let these people go and say, look, okay, you can you can continue to find market solutions, but I, I think people will stop listening to you completely, and then you will be talking to yourselves, and then you will die out, and then we have hopefully hopefully fixed the planet, because our governments have have told us what to do and what not to do, uh, at least to to a larger extent than today, and we all had our green new deal, but but we cannot we cannot wait for this kind for these kind of people to come around. I, I don't think that they will. They, I think the that's human nature. Once you are married to to such a paradigm, you think about uh, Alan Greenspan, for example, who was married to this worldview that that the individual is is holy, and that government should should not be part of society or, or try to to do uh, no harm, basically. Then these people cannot be expected to change. So, so I think it's better to start with something fresh. Sociology started like that. They realized there there are some problems, and they had these four contributional founders, more or less, Marx among them, and they they started to think about certain issues. I think it's time again today to to have a new scientific discipline which centers on the problems of climate change, which is caused by capitalism, caused by by profit-led exploitation of of the planet. And then inequality, which is also caused by the, the capitalist uh, side of the economy. So I'm not saying that we should abolish the capitalist side, but I'm saying that we, we should make sure that it doesn't destroy the whole planet and the whole of society. And um, I, I think that's where we where we have to go in the future to, to inf- influence things and not try to persuade the mainstream people that they are wrong. That's, that's useless. You said funeral by funeral, um, but... But still, mainstream ed- education almost entirely is mainstream. So there are young people coming in as well. So how does that – the old guys will die, but there's still – there's plenty of new people to come and take their place. So I'm not sure how that works. Well, yeah, the, the young people take up their place and they will be thinking about different things. They hopefully will use other paradigms and then either they are able to go somewhere and become professors themselves or – uh, economics will go the way of, let's say, maybe I'm too insulting, but philosophy. Okay, philosophy is largely irre- irrelevant today compared to 50 years ago. Right? Think about the 60s and 70s. Lots of philosophers from France and other countries talking about what to do, talking about uh, problems of the real world, what to do with the former colonies of France, for example. What is freedom? All these kind of ideas, all these these theories. That was really a, a good time for for philosophy. But um, if economics keeps this kind of narrow approach of saying, look, we can find market solutions to all problems that there exist in the world. 
I, I think at some point people will stop listening to those. And then central banks probably will be at some point saying, look, we we don't want any more DSG modelers because they think that the economy is moved by changes in the interest rate and we don't have that anymore. We don't do that, these kind of things anymore. The interest rate is zero. So, so don't come to me with this kind of model. So because of history and because we move through time, people will have other ideas and that I means I think that also the the way that the economics discipline is is developing in, in Germany I see that since five years numbers of economic students are falling and that I think is a clear sign of failure of economics people are interested in solving problems uh, but they don't study economics anymore. Okay, and uh, so so it seems that the the they're influenced by the ancestors. So as the ancestors die off, the current crop of of economists or neoclassical economists will be much more uh, potentially persuasive, especially given the problems that we're obviously facing right now. Well, um, they are irrelevant, just like uh, there are still professors of philosophy, but they are largely irrelevant. The same with sociology. Okay, so ac- academic disciplines, um, they have different grades of, of power, economics being very powerful for the last 40 years. But that is not that is not something which needs to happen in the next forty years. And I think if economics does not change, they will lose a lot of their power because the answers that they give, and, and that's basically to every question, is that we need to have more markets and make better use of markets. Uh, but again, the problems of of inequality and climate change are caused by the use of markets. So it's impossible to have somebody say, "Yeah, if you want to if you want to stop these problems, which are the." which are caused by by the use of markets, we should use more markets. Um, People will be fed up with this kind of stuff very soon. And then economics will just wither away somewhere in in academic faculties. Again, you will still have professors of economics, but most of the public will ignore these people and say, oh, yeah, those are the people that caused the great financial crisis and so on. (laughs) That's, That's also possible. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, you were you were saying that uh, there's no point in communicating with each other, or or there's no convincing them, and they're not going to be convincing us because the discussions that everybody's having, as we as we substantially discussed last time, the debate is not going on directly. The real debate is going on in the world around what's being spoken about, um, which is why it's it's going to be very difficult to come to a uh, an agreement because we're not discussing the things that need to be discussed yeah yeah definitely so um what what we discussed then was that there's a what, what's called an epistemological divide that we we, we yes. don't agree on the principles that that i that are to be used in order to produce valid knowledge about the, the real world so, so, and that, and this really relates to, again back to the the two different approaches to to economics and um, and what I, what I would like to add to to Dirk's comments just before on, on how to go about changing uh, economic policy ultimately what's what it's all about. Um, one one thing that's that's so crucial is is accountability and and what what he dis, what he uh, mentioned on on the how on the group thing how. The, the top journals are closed land for for heterodox economists and so forth, and and how these the neoclassical school of economics reproduces itself as as the most powerful economics institution knowledge institution in society. There there's a, there's just one source of of accountability in this system, and that that's the econ- economic students, because the the media are not asking the tough questions. 
they are not asking when when there's there's a well currently the economists are saying that the public debt is okay for now but we never know if if the interest rate will go up it probably will blah 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 but the the, the mainstream journalists are never saying well how about japan they have uh, yield curve control why can't we just do that and 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 these questions so there's no there's a severe lack of accountability in the system but the economic students on the other hand they have they have a grip on the on their professors and and their faculty because they have to uh, live up to the demands of the students ultimately there's there's definitely a symmetry because the professors uh, know what's or supposedly know what's what the students need to learn but the students if they uh, reference solid economic evidence and scholarship they can raise demands that that the universities need to meet in order to to avoid losing face faces really so so i think we shouldn't underestimate the power of, of mobilizing students and, and providing them with the the ideas and and uh, resources that they need in order to to change uh, economic institutions i i'm with jeff uh, dirk insofar as, as i'm skeptical about how, how quickly that process can go about, but it's so crucial that, as you say, when when funerals go by, that they are gradually replaced by someone who's who's more open to new ideas than than before, and and I think the students are so crucial in in that equation. You have to put pressure on on every aspect. You have to put pressure in every direction because you can't know which part's going to break, and you have to be ready for it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, you have to do both things. So you, you have to try to take over economics, um, but you have to also make clear to them that there's another option uh, of creating faculties of a new scientific discipline, which would then be a competitor to economics and would would make economics smaller and diminish its power. But I completely agree with Asker that it's it's the, the one strategy that is very promising is to have students organize and to feed them with arguments and to feed them with papers so they so they know with the use of social media and whatever is available that so they know some of the good stuff and can confront professors and probably uh, influence professors to to change the the curriculum and well so that we have uh, some gradual change but again we we did not see that for for about i mean the great financial crisis started in 2007 basically with the with the subprime crash and then 2008 2009 was where there were big years it's more than 10 years now and you can see the the instabilities that have been created by this kind of crash uh, also probably in in denmark and in germany so there politically there's a lot of problems and, and we need to solve them. And if we if we cannot address them in public discourse because it's not allowed, because it's all, it's all in the assumptions, then we're doomed. And there will be worse thing happening to us than, than a paradigm change in, in, in an economics faculty. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'm I'm if there's anything if there's anything that, that has not been said that needs to be said, uh, this is this is your opportunity to do so. This is a sprawling topic, and uh, you know it's 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 a little scary to 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 read Democracy and Change, which I strongly recommend to people. But it opens your eyes, I think, as they need to be opened. So, is there anything else that that needs to be said uh, as far as what needs to be done, what we're doing, uh, anything else you think? I would may, maybe add add one thing, and that's uh, for the for the MMT uh, interested. Um, uh, Georg Friedrich Knapp, who's who's the 
the founder of the state theory of money back in 1905 when he published the, the book in German, he was, was writing in the preamble that one of his purposes is to convince people that, that money is really a subject of political science rather than economics. And that's, that's really a, a way to think about how MMT relates to political economy and, and, and viewing, viewing the politics and, and political institutions as crucially embedded in, in how the economy functions. And, and MMT's analysis of how the, the public finances are intricately linked to the, to the, to the wider economy through the, the monetary system is, is just such a, a crucial way to, to understand that connection between the, polit the, the political and the, and the wider economy. Yeah, I, I think that one of the crucial things is that people understand MMT. Um, so that's that's really the start of everything. So, so once you have understood MMT, you will also understand that the economic is always political. Okay, so this this idea of of Knapp, as Asker just pointed out, is is so important that that it's us who are in a democracy calling the shots. So the government uh, can can spend whatever amount of money it it needs to spend. And that means that it is more powerful because even a billionaire's purchasing power is limited. Only being a, a billionaire means that you cannot spend a trillion, for example, but the government could spend a trillion. So it's it's very important that we have to to come up with with new ideas, with utopias, with with ideas of how we want to live. We have to discuss these issues. We have to open up the space. I, I would very much like it if, if the arts would jump in more into this and say, look, if we can imagine a future in which we can call the shots, what would it look like? I, I think we we need, just like with the New Deal, we need some kind of shift in terms of, of awareness that, that it's it's our generation. And this is the probably the most important decade of, of mankind in which we can either decide to, to, to go towards green zero and, and stop global warming or we go beyond it, and then, of course, all bets are off. That means that politics will be reacting to crisis instead of planning with with a view towards the future. Uh, this is a very different world. So uh, we are really at a crossroads here, and I, I think that we we should make progress in, in this decade, or we will end uh, having societies which, again, are, are crisis-prone and which... Um, yeah, or, or worse, uh, where people will be migrating because they they cannot earn a living anymore where wherever they are. So these things will will start happening in the next couple of decades. Um, so I, I I do think that that people realize that this is a crucial moment in time, and that is where I I also think coming back to those books, I think we can be very hopeful for the future, because this idea that the the market is efficient. People are stupid, but they're not that stupid. If if you want, <laughs> okay. So, so if people see that that there's crises that are caused by markets and by lack of regulation and by by financial speculation, then they will realize that we need some kind of of different paradigm to solve our problems. And and that I think is again that's that's coming back to Keynes saying that the the power of ideas is bigger than the power of vested interests. And, and we, we have to try. There's, there's just no other way. We have to try this and, and stay optimistic. Um, okay. Uh, I think this has been good. Uh, so thanks both of you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a big pleasure. Bye, Dirk. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Jeff. Bye-bye.
Music for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn, and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with Dirk Entz and Oskar Voltsgaard. It's also part four of a larger four-part series on the relationship between neoclassical or mainstream economics and MMT. Parts two and three were with Sam Levy on the core assumptions of mainstream economics. Part one with Dirk and Oscar was on the 2020 paper they wrote, responding to a 2019 paper by a mainstream economist, expressing the common concern for the long-term fiscal sustainability of government spending and its corresponding debt and interest. The conversation inspired a post, which you can find a link to in the show notes. In today's episode, we take a step back to discuss the larger context in which all these topics exist. For the first half hour, we discuss the monster we truly face, both as MMTers and human beings, as painstakingly and powerfully detailed in the 2017 book Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. For the rest of the show, we talk about what must be done to change our economics and economics education, the latter of which is largely based on the 2014 book, Econocracy. Econocracy was written by three members of Rethinking Economics, which is an international organization of economics students promoting pluralism in the classroom. 
Oscar serves as the vice chair of Rethinking Economics Denmark. We face multiple catastrophic problems, which Oscar summarizes as a financial crisis, inequality, and a climate crisis. These are the big problems that must be addressed with bold solutions, but solutions are not possible until the problem is fully understood, which is not possible until those problems are acknowledged to exist in the first place. Most unfortunately, the powerful have little incentive to stop these crises at all, since they are likely to be the last and least harmed, and in important ways may even benefit from their happening. As Dirk says, quoting Keynes, in the long run, it is the ideas that matter. The only question is how many of us suffer between now and then. All we can do is take a breath and continue to show people how the economy actually works to realize that we can decide to use it differently and that it is time to either make our leaders into better decision makers or for us to replace those leaders or become those leaders. There are simply no other options. You will find links to several important figures, books, and sources mentioned by Dirk and Oscar in the show notes. But for now, on to my conversation with Dirk Entz and Oscar Voltzgaard. <laughs> 